Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvot Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but we would love to meet you in person. All are welcome, and that includes you. So if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service at the corner of Arthur Ashe Boulevard and Grove in the historic synagogue across from the Art Museum. Can't make it in person? No problem. We are also live streaming on YouTube. Contact our administrator at tikvotdirector at gmail.com for the link during the week, or contact us on our website, tikvotisrael.com. There, you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. I'd like to begin with a quote from Rabbi Alan Liu in his poignant book, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared, about the days of awe and the high holidays. Quote, We are not the first culture in the world to intuit a sense of brokenness in human existence, nor are we the first people to celebrate a yearly ritual of atonement and judgment. In ancient Greece, they had a ceremony called pharmakos. In the city of Athens, a man and woman representing all the men and women in the city were driven away and never permitted back in the city again. This was done to propitiate, this is Rabbi Allen's word, which I'm going to uh, define as gain favor with or appease the gods for the brokenness of all the citizens of Athens. This ceremony supplanted human sacrifice and was a step toward enlightenment. Christianity and Judaism took the process one step further. Christianity sacrificed one human being, one man who died for everyone else's brokenness for all time. No further propitiations or atonement, cleansing, kippur, would ever be necessary. We Jews went even further. We replaced people altogether with a goat. We read about the sacrifice of the scapegoat in the Torah on the morning of Yom Kippur, unquote. I think Rabbi Allen is on to something, and I think Rabbi Allen has also missed something. Yes, there is brokenness in the world, and for that, we humans need atonement, a complicated word, sometimes translated as expiation or propitiation, as Rabbi Allen does. Kapara and the related word kippur, often translated atonement, what does that mean? It means a covering over, cleansing, purging, forgiveness, wiping away. Rabbi Allen sensed the need for forgiveness and cleansing in our world, atonement, but I believe he was wrong about Christianity, that is, Yeshua faith, as told in the Gospels, with their very Jewish context. What if cleansing atonement was really about Yeshua and the scapegoat at the same time? And during the time of Yeshua, there was an official high priest named Caiaphas. But the question is, who is the real high priest? Let's examine what actually happened on Yom Kippur, focusing on the high priest and the scapegoat, especially during the time of Yeshua, that is, Second Temple Judaism. 
For this, we will turn to the Mishnah, rabbinic writing, which explained how the high priest actually walked out the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur during Second Temple Judaism. Uh, this is enumerated, this is explained in Leviticus 16, which we read, um, but uh, the Mishnah explains what actually happened during the time of Yeshua. Then we will see how Yeshua echoes and brings to fullness all of these themes near the time of his death on the tree. Just a side note, I found an excellent resource for this sermon, and much of the insights about Yom Kippur and the Gospels come from Reverend Dr. Roger David Aus in a book that he wrote. Okay, on to Yom Kippur and what happened on that day. This is from Tractate Yoma in the Mishnah, Jewish writings from the early 200s. It explains what happened on Yom Kippur with the high priest, again, as I said, based on Leviticus 16, which is today's Torah portion. The high priest comes and stands next to his bull, and his bull was standing between the entrance hall and the altar with its head facing to the south and its face to the west. And the priest stands to the east of the bull and his face points toward the west. And the priest places his two hands on the bull and confesses. And this is what he would say in his confession. Please, God, I have sinned. I have done wrong, and I have rebelled before you, I and my family. Please grant atonement, please, for the sins and for the wrongs and for the rebellions that I have sinned and done wrong and rebelled before you, I and my family, as is written in the Torah of Moses, your servant. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you of all your sins. You shall be clean before the Lord. Leviticus 16. And the priests and the people who are in the courtyard respond after he recites the name of God. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and all time. Just a side note, remember that Clarine instructed us that today is the day where we say that out loud and not just whisper it. Do you remember that? This is why. Because the high priest said the name of God and the people responded, blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom for all eternity. And so on Yom Kippur, we say that part, the same volume. That's why. This is a little further in, in Tractate Yuma. The high priest comes and stands next to his bull a second time and places his two hands upon it and confesses. And this is what he would say. Please, God, I have sinned, I have done wrong, and I have rebelled before you, I and my family and the children of Aaron. So now he's praying for himself, his household, the first time, and now he's added the priesthood and the Levites. What do you think? Is there going to be a third one? A third confession? Yes. The Yom Kippur service continues. This is further on Yoma um, uh, Tractate, uh, chapter 6. The high priest comes over to the scapegoat. What was it before? It was a bull, right? This time the animal is different. Maybe the prayer will be different. Places both his hands upon it and confesses, and he would say as follows, Please God, your people, the house of Israel, have sinned and done wrong rebelled before you. Please, God, grant atonement. Please, for the sins and the wrongs, for all the rebellions they have sinned and done wrong, and rebelled before you, your people, the house of Israel. So what do we derive from this? Well, I had a lot of dot, dot, dots up there because it's very repetitive, and I shared with you the parts that are different. The prayer is different, and the last one, the animal is different. So here is the threefold prayer 
of the high priest on Yom Kippur. Here's a summary of it. Number one, he asked for cleansing and forgiveness for who? Himself and his family. The second, cleansing and forgiveness for who? Sons of Aaron. Number three, cleansing and forgiveness for who? All of Israel. And notice that now it's a goat. It's a scapegoat. We also see that the high priest actually pronounces, as I mentioned, the divine name in the holiest place, typically spelled out yud Hey vav Hey. This is the holy name of God that is normally never said in Judaism, except by the high priest on this day, on Yom Kippur. To utter the name carelessly at other times means to take God's name in vain or to treat it without respect and reverence. This was considered blasphemy in Judaism. Finally, we see that there are different animals, as I mentioned, for the three prayers. The priest and his family and the priesthood as a whole, there he places his hands on a bull. But the final prayer, purging the evil from all of Israel, is on what? The scapegoat. Speaking of which, let us now turn from the priest on Yom Kippur to the scapegoat on Yom Kippur. This is what happened according to Yoma chapter 6, the same tractate that uh, in the Mishnah that we just referenced. After the confession over the scapegoat, the priest passed the goat to the one who was to lead it into the wilderness. They made a ramp for the goat due to the Babylonian Jews who were in Jerusalem, who would pluck at the goat's hair and would say to the goat, take our sins and go, take our sins and go, and do not leave them with us. People from the from among the prominent residents of Jerusalem would escort the one leading the goat until they reached the first booth. Booths were set up along the path to the wilderness to provide the escort a place to rest. There were booths, 10 booths from Jerusalem to the cliff. 10 booths, kind of like the 10 days of awe, right? At each and every booth, people there say to him, here is food, here is water if you need it. Not for the goat, for the person that's accompanying the goat. And they escort him from booth to booth, except for the last person at the last booth who does not reach the cliff with him. What's that? There's a cliff. Hmm. Rather, he stands from a distance and observes his actions to ensure that he fulfills the mitzvah properly. And he pushes the goat backward, and it rolls and descends, and it would not reach halfway down the mountain until it was torn limb from limb. He pushes the goat from the cliff. So what do we understand from this ritual fulfilling the commandment in Leviticus 16? Number one, for the last prayer, all the sins of Israel are transferred onto the scapegoat and led away to, into the wilderness to die. Prominent people would watch the goat from a distance, but ultimately the goat would be cast out and alone. They would pluck hairs from the goat. They gave nourishment to the man who was leading the goat, and they would mock, almost mock the goat, right, and pluck its hairs. And uh, then they would push the goat off a cliff, and it would roll to its death. Now let us turn to the Gospels. In Luke 4, Yeshua begins his ministry. He's just come out of the temptation in the, de in the desert for 40 days. And he walks into the synagogue on Shabbat, and he reads from Isaiah. And this is what he says. The Ruach Adonai, the Spirit of God, is the Lord, is upon me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, proclaim the year of Adonai's favor. He closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue were focused on him. Then he began to tell them, this is Yeshua's first drosh. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. But he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. But with all truthfulness, I say to you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when heaven was closed for three and a half years, and there came a great famine all over the land. Elijah was not sent to any of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a widowed woman. There were many with Sara'at, which is a skin disease, in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were purified apart from Naaman the Syrian. Now all in the synagogue were filled with rage upon hearing these things. Rising up, they drove him out of the town and brought him as far as the edge of a mountain on which their city had been built in order to throw him off a cliff. But passing through the middle of them, he went on his way. Why were the people enraged? Well, perhaps because he held up two examples of righteous Gentiles and not Israelites as beacons of faith. Or perhaps they were enraged because he said he was the fulfillment of this Isaiah scripture, that he, a mere person, was going to heal the blind and set free those in bondage, something that only the Lord can do, which, of course, he then proceeded to do. But notice, they don't do what is the normal punishment in the time of Second Temple Judaism. What's the normal punishment for blasphemy, let's say? Stoning. What do they try to do? Try to hurl them off a cliff, like the scapegoat. But this is the beginning of Yeshua's ministry. It's not the end. So it's not his time to be the scapegoat. So he miraculously slips through the crowd. The time will come for him to be the scapegoat in three and a half years. Then, near the end of his ministry and his death and resurrection, Yeshua is questioned by the actual physical, earthly high priest who's named Caiaphas. This is from Mark 14. Then they led Yeshua away to the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, and all the ruling Kohanim, priests, elders, and Torah scholars gathered. Peter had followed him from a distance, right into the courtyard of the Kohen Gadol, high priest. He was sitting with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Now the ruling priests and all the Sanhedrin kept trying to get evidence against Yeshua so they could put him to death, but they weren't finding any. Many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony wasn't consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Yet even then their testimony didn't agree. The high priest stood up in the middle and questioned Yeshua, saying, do you have an answer? What is this they're testifying against you? But keeping silent, Yeshua did not answer. Again, the Kohen Gadol questioned him, are you the Mashiach, son of the Blessed One? I am, 
said, you sure? Probably with a pause. I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the powerful one and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the Kohen Gadol says, why do we still need witnesses? You've heard this blasphemy. What seems right to you? Then all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, saying, prophesy. Also the guards slapped him around. The high priest asked Yeshua, are you the Mashiach or Messiah, often translated as Christ from the Greek Christos? This word in Hebrew has a meaning. It means the anointed one. Because only the high priest at this time was anointed with oil. So the high priest was the Mashiach. That's what he was often called. And used to being, he was used to being called that because of the commandment of the oil and also, I think, because of the intense authority and mantle of being the high priest. In Jewish thought at this time, the high priest was even thought of as somewhat divine because he stood in between Israel and God. The fate of the entire nation rested on one man's shoulder on one day. And so he needed supernatural strength to get through that kind of charge, that kind of mantle. Also, as we read in Yoma, the high priest was the only one to carry the divine name, to utter it out loud, and for it not to be blasphemy. So think of the irony of this statement from the high priest, the earthly one, Caiaphas. He's supposed to be the anointed one. He's supposed to be the Messiah, the high priest. He's supposed to be the one who utters the divine name once a year. And this man asks Yeshua before all the Sanhedrin, are you the Mashiach? Are you the anointed one? Are you the real high priest? Isn't that interesting? And Yeshua responds, what? I am. Meaning not only is he that heavenly high priest, but he shares an identity with the great I am. And not only that, Yeshua is the cloud rider from Daniel 7 who approached the ancient of days and was given authority over all nations. And so Yeshua is accused of blasphemy, which is taking the Lord's name, yud Vavhe, in vain. But the point is this, it would be blasphemy unless it were somehow true that Yeshua is the real high priest, the true intermediary between God and Israel, the true divine son of God who shares an identity, name with God. So if Yeshua is the heavenly high priest, he can indeed wield and carry the name of God, and it is not blasphemy. It is simply a part of his identity and calling. He is using the name of God, associating himself with the name, the identity of the God of Israel, something that only the high priest can do, and normally only on Yom Kippur. Well, 
it seems like it's about to be Yom Kippur on Passover. They're colliding somehow because Passover, of course, is when Yeshua dies and is raised again. And this is precisely the point that the gospel writers are making. Yeshua died on Passover and he fulfills that story. But he also fulfills the story of Yom Kippur, the high priest, the scapegoat, and the uttering of the divine name, yud Hey vav Hey. He carries it. The lamb on Passover had a different function than the scapegoat on Yom Kippur. The blood of the lamb protected Israel from death, which Yeshua did. But the lamb on Passover was not a substitute for their sins and their evil. Only the scapegoat was on Yom Kippur. An animal carrying the evil and idolatry and cruelty of the nation was unique to the Day of Atonement. So it was the festival of Passover when Yeshua died, but he brought the fullness of Yom Kippur into it, in a sense. In the Gospels, Yeshua also has a threefold prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, just like the high priest does on Yom Kippur. This is from Matthew 26. Then Yeshua comes with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he tells the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took along Peter and Zebedee's two sons, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he tells them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he comes to the disciples and finds them sleeping and tells Peter, you couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, let your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So he left them again and prayed, how many times? Third time saying the same words once more. Then he comes to his disciples and says to them, still sleeping, taking your rest. Look, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being delivered into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. Look, my betrayer is near. While Yeshua was still speaking, here came Judas, one of the 12, and with him a big crowd with swords and clubs from the ruling Kohanim and elders of the people. Then all the disciples fled, abandoning him. Somebody say, big crowd from the ruling priests. Then all of the disciples fled, abandoning him. Now those who had seized Yeshua led him away to Caiaphas, the Kohen Gadol, where the Torah scholars and elders had gathered. Yeshua's prayer is threefold. But unlike the high priest, he doesn't change it throughout the three times. It's the same prayer. Why is that? Because he himself has no sins to atone for. From this passage, we also see the crowd of prominent folks gathering around as he was led out, delivered away. Who else had a crowd of prominent folks that watched from a distance as he was led away to death? The scapegoat. And they led this heavenly high priest, Yeshua, to the earthly high priest, Caiaphas, in order for him to become not a priest, 
but a scapegoat, and purge humanity from their sins. All of his followers abandoned him. All of them. Not one. Not one remained to support him. Just as the scapegoat is abandoned to die alone, although it did nothing wrong, hurled off a cliff for all the sins and shame of Israel. Isaiah 50, describing the suffering servant, which I believe refers to Yeshua, says this, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those pulling out my beard. I did not hide my face from humiliation and spitting. I think Isaiah is telling us that hundreds of years later, they were going to pull on the beard of Yeshua, just like they pulled on the hair of that goat. They must have pulled on his beard and beaten him all the way to the execution stake. They mocked him and they struck him along the way. Even the sight of Yeshua's death, Golgotha, is probably based on the Hebrew verb Gilgal, which means to roll, reminding us of the place where the goat rolled down the cliff to its death. The stone where he died, also, what happened to the stone that covered the grave? When he was resurrected, it was rolled away. This is what Dr. Au says to sum this up, quote, an association of both places via the root Gilgal was thus very probably intentional and not simply by chance. The sight of Jesus' death as a scapegoat, atoning for all the sins of the people, that's Golgotha, was deliberately described as now superseded by the sight of his victory over death through the resurrection, unquote. In other words, they rolled the stone away. Finally, let us consider this conversation involving Caiaphas, the high priest, just before all the events that led to Yeshua's death and resurrection. This is from John 11. Therefore, because Yeshua raised Lazarus from the dead, many of the Judeans who had come to Miriam and seen what Yeshua had done put their trust in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Yeshua had done. So the ruling priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was Kohen Gadol that year, said to them, you know nothing. You don't take into account, and say this with me, that it is better for you that one man die for the people rather than for the whole nation to be destroyed. From the mouth of the earthly high priest himself, it is better that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. What does that sound like? The earthly high priest, it seems, has found the perfect scapegoat. He just doesn't know that this man is not only a scapegoat, he is also the heavenly high priest. So what does this mean for us? It means that we relate to God through atonement, forgiveness, cleansing, wholeness. We need Yeshua and we need the scapegoat because Yeshua is the scapegoat. But we also need the heavenly high priest, Yeshua. We cannot move forward in life without cleansing, 
because this world without atonement is broken. But with forgiveness, there is restoration. We have seen how the scapegoat, and thus Yeshua, atones for the sins of Israel, the Jewish people. The New Covenant scriptures explain how this is expanded to the nations, to all who trust in him. This is from 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My children, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an intercessor with the Father, the righteous Messiah, which means anointed one, high priest, Yeshua. He is the atonement for our sins, and not only for our sins, Israel, but also for the whole world. The threefold praying of the high priest on Yom Kippur and the threefold prayer of Yeshua in the garden, these are echoed in the actions of Peter. Did you notice Peter was in there? He betrays Yeshua how many times? Three times. Claiming he does not even know the man. Taking an oath and uttering a curse. The rooster crows and Peter looks into the eyes of Yeshua. And Peter just weeps. Here is the first student to call him Messiah, the anointed one, the name of the high priest, the first one of his students, now saying he doesn't even know the man. Yeshua is now abandoned, stricken like the goat on Yom Kippur, but yet Yeshua forgives Peter and restores him. How many times? Three times, right? Do you love me, Simon? Feed my sheep. Ask them three times. Threefold prayer in the garden, reflecting the threefold prayer of the high priest. Threefold rejection and denial by Simon, followed by a threefold affirmation and installation after Yeshua's resurrection. And Simon Peter becomes the bedrock of the early Yeshua faith community in the book of Acts, hence his new name, Petros. The lesson here is the depth and fullness of atonement and forgiveness. God can restore even the worst sins back to himself, even if we deny him as he's going to die. <laughs> he, he's able to restore us. Finally, it means that we relate to Yeshua as the name of God. yud Hey vav Hey. Yeshua, Jesus, is not just a first century rabbi. He is not just a good person that we read about and learn from. He is not just a prophet. He is not just an excellent teacher, although he is all those things. He is the eternal high priest, the great I am. He shares an identity or name with the God of Israel, and he lives forever to make cleansing from all of our evil actions. He has all authority over the forces of evil and sin and death. Yeshua is interceding for us right now, right now to the Father, because he is the heavenly high priest, the anointed one, Mashiach, who died once for the sins of humanity and now is raised and lives forever. Therefore, we must not only see Yeshua as our rabbi, but we must see him as our high priest. We must see him 
as our anointed one who makes atonement for us. We must put our trust continuously in the sacrifice of his life, his blood poured out, his body broken, beaten, mocked, scourged, whipped, tortured, and nailed to a tree. All his friends abandoned him, naked, to be humiliated on a Roman execution stake. We must trust in him. We must give our allegiance to him because he is the only one who is worthy. Yeshua is the only one qualified to be both the scapegoat and the divine high priest forever. Yeshua is Lord. Yeshua is worthy. Today, on Yom Kippur, let us cling to him. Avinu, our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you that in underneath the New Testament is all of this beautiful Jewish stuff, <laughs> all these beautiful Jewish images uh, of Yom Kippur and that the gospel writers wanted us to, to, to go looking for, treasures to find about how you, O oh Lord, are the Messiah. You, O oh Lord Yeshua, are the, the King of Israel, and you bring atonement to us and to all nations, to all those who trust in you, Lord. And we ask you to help us cling to you today and all the days of our lives. And in Yeshua's name we pray. The name above all names that is synonymous with Yudhe Vavhe. In that name we pray. Amen. Amen.